Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening again. Welcome to another program. We are not woke here, nor are we politically correct. Yes, I'm Alan Jones. You're watching the station of Honest Opinion, ADH TV. Remember last night I spoke to Professor Gigi Foster about her new book, The Great COVID Panic. There it is. It is a very good read and you can order it at connorcourtpublishing.com.au. All about the great COVID panic. Uh, connorcourtpublishing.com.au. The nonsense about climate change goes on, but eventually the public will wake up. More of that in a moment. But aren't governments wonderful at doing business? The New South Wales government in 2015 sold the Vales Point power station on the Central Coast to the private sector for $1 million. It's now been sold at the weekend for $200 million. People like Trevor St Baker and Brian Flannery are too smart for dumb bureaucrats advising equally stupid politicians. I spoke last night about this potentially corrupt business in Queensland concerning the state-run forensic laboratory. We don't let things go away on this program. Well, apparently the interim findings of this Sofronoff report have been handed to the Queensland Cabinet this morning. Government in Queensland, being what it is, details of the report have been kept firmly under wraps. But leaked information today tells us that almost 600 DNA samples from sex crimes were not fully tested by the forensic laboratory. The reality is an unknown number of samples which could contain DNA evidence vital to solving rapes and murders were allegedly not tested. We'll keep you posted, it's a big story. There could be criminals on the run simply because DNA testing hadn't been satisfactorily done. Now this fuel excise ends at the end of this month, you'll pay another 22 cents a litre. But don't you love it? The Australian Competition Consumer Commission are going to closely monitor prices. They're a joke at the best of times, but according to industry estimates, there'll be more than 700 million litres of lower excise fuel in the system, that's in the Bowsers, when the fuel excise is reintroduced. You mean to say that the ACCC will stop you from being ripped off? Not likely. And in New South Wales, the Premier Dominic Perrottet is examining legislation in other states, which is based on the principle no body, no parole. In other words, prisoners will have to satisfactorily cooperate with authorities to find their victim's location, body, before the state parole authority can grant them parole. It's a very fair point. So long as, of course, the person found guilty is in fact guilty. Coming up tonight, the man whom I regard as the architect of Brexit, Nigel Farage. Plenty to say about the Queen, the funeral, the new British Prime Minister Liz Truss and his own gin. And Peggy will join us from America. Headlines over there, the dogfight between the Democrats and the Republicans continues. You get it all here on this program on ADH. That's where you're watching. And I'm Alan Jones. At the end of the day, we are all lay people, pretty ordinary people. But the lay person's conclusion in relation to the Queen's funeral was that it was simply beyond belief. It's clear we will never see the like again of Queen Elizabeth II, but we'll also never see the like of such an assembly honouring a person in death. It wasn't just the gathering of leaders at Westminster Abbey or the crowds that flocked to London reportedly in their millions would Elizabeth ever have imagined she had this impact on the world. As one writer observed, Queen Elizabeth's reign spanned Britain's journey from the crystal radio receiver to the smartphone. Massive social and political upheaval, but through it all, the Queen never faltered. She held her people together. Billions watched all of this worldwide. The pageantry was beyond belief. 3,000 military personnel attended, marching in mind-boggling step with one another. The gun carriage that carried the coffin and later took it past Buckingham Palace to Wellington Arch was pulled by 98 Royal Navy sailors. 
That's a tradition dating back from the funeral of Queen Elizabeth's great-great-grandmother in 1901. The horses pulling Queen Victoria's coffin, on the same carriage, I might add, that bore Queen Elizabeth's coffin, reared up. Naval officers had to step in before the carriage overturned. And as the Royal Navy sailors, 98 of them, paid their respects outside Westminster Abbey for an hour because they were no longer required for that hour, their hats came off in unison, 98 of them. Their heads bowed as one, 98 of them. It was amazing. Then the trumpeters, the choirs of Westminster Abbey and the Chapel Royal, and a lone piper whose notes the Queen had heard in the mornings for years filled the 13th century Abbey. And then the wreath, drawn from flowers and foliage, isn't that beautiful? In the gardens of royal residences, Buckingham Palace, Highgrove and Clarence House, rosemary for remembrance, and the old English oak symbolising the strength of love, myrtle grown from a bush that supplies the sprig used in the Queen's wedding bouquet 75 years ago. And the card that people could see in the centre of the wreath had a simple message handwritten by her son, King Charles, in loving and devoted memory. Often at services such as this, the sermon or the commendation is delivered in language that doesn't resonate with the ordinary person. The late Queen reportedly determined and approved every detail. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, spoke about, quote, the Christian soul of our sister Elizabeth, unquote. He may have caused some raised eyebrows when he appeared to be directing some comments to politicians, some of the 500 heads of state and scores of foreign royals present when he alluded to service in language that resonates. He said, quote, people of loving service are rare in any walk of life. Leaders of loving service, service are still rarer, but in all cases, those who serve will be loved and remembered when those who cling to power and privileges are forgotten. The Archbishop made a further point. He said, quote, her service to so many people in this nation, the Commonwealth and the world had its foundation in her following Christ God himself, who said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Archbishop also told the congregation, started with royalty, presidents and prime ministers, that few in a position of power had received such an outpouring of love than the 96-year-old Queen following her death on September 8. Yesterday was in every sense the final act in 10 days of courtly pageantry, the dimension of which we have never seen before and we will never see again. Vast military and ceremonial regiments and marching bands, many in ornate outfits designed as long ago as the 14th century. And what about the shoulders of the coffin bearers, known as the service equerries to the Queen, who reached the door of the Abbey at the precise moment the last of the Tenabel's 96 peals ran out, one for every minute for an hour and a half tolling the years of life of the Queen. But the precision, the last bell of 96, pealed exactly as the lead-lined coffin reached the door of Westminster Abbey. It's almost unbelievable. The people turned up in biblical numbers, swamping the streets of London, filling its parks, packing its pubs, will remain a source of wonderment to many. As one writer said, it was a love letter made up of human beings. But when service and duty are discussed, one can never forget that in dedicating her life to both, this was a woman who could never for 70 years go to the beach, go to the local swimming pool, go to the pictures, go even for a walk down the street, go shopping. Queen Elizabeth would never have expressed it in such terms, but it was also a life of sacrifice. The Archbishop of Canterbury was spot on in his six-minute humanising address, when he described the Queen as having touched, quote, a multitude of lives and having been, quote, a joyful figure to many, and that the outpouring of emotion, quote, arises from her abundant life and loving service now gone from us, unquote. And how true 
But he also said that the pattern for many leaders was to be exalted in life and forgotten after death. He further said, quote, we'll all face the merciful judgment of God. We can all share the Queen's hope, which in life and death inspired her to service and leadership. Beautiful words, service in life, hope in death. Ending the six minute address with Vera Lynn's wartime anthem, we'll meet again. The Archbishop of Canterbury knew that he was speaking about a person who was larger than life, who'll never be forgotten, and the outpouring of love over the last 10 days, and especially yesterday, was emphatic proof of that truth. Well, as you did here in my absence, Jake Thrupp replaced me on this program, a young, intelligent and politically aware individual. I say that because last year he published an anthology of essays. He approached eminent people here and abroad to write about Australia tomorrow. That's what the anthology was called, primarily because of the crisis in genuine conservative views. I contributed an essay in that anthology entitled The Crisis in Western Political Leadership. Never before, in my opinion, has that crisis been as manifest as it is today. As I've said many times, when the much maligned Trump was president, we didn't hear a squeak out of the rocket man in North Korea. Putin received appropriate warnings from President Trump about any expansionist views that Putin might have. And of course, China was silent about Taiwan. Trump goes and look at the crisis faced by the free world. Well, that free world does have one genuine leader to whom we've spoken before on this program, Nigel Farage. Leadership is a pretty simple proposition, but hard to execute. You get into the ring and you prosecute what you believe in. Nigel Farage led the UK Independence Party. The title suggests what it was about. Get the UK out of the European swamp. But it was an unpopular position. Nigel Farage kept at it. And now this man will always be regarded as the legitimate architect of Brexit who argued for 30 years that it was time for Britain to separate itself from the Brussels bureaucratic wasteland. Well, Australia are in desperate need of a dose of Nigel Farage, now a dominant international political figure. Today is September 20. Nigel will be here in less than a week. To my Melbourne viewers, he'll be there on September 26. Nigel will be in Sydney a week today, September 27, and in Brisbane a week Thursday, September 29. An entertaining evening with Nigel Farage. Now, you book now. Get to it. NigelLive.com.au. NigelLive.com.au. Entertaining it will be, but also informative and intellectually rewarding. And Nigel Farage joins me again. Nigel, thank you for your time. But I've read about what you said about the death of Queen Elizabeth, and you were present in front of Buckingham Palace yesterday for that magnificent International Assembly honouring the late Queen. Share us with your thoughts. Yes, well, I have to say I was honoured uh, to be there yesterday, somewhat overwhelmed uh, by what I witnessed at first hand. I'd seen the, the reel of Winston Churchill's state funeral with the military bands and the marching music and the representation from all over the world. I mean, what we've seen in the last 48 hours is the largest gathering of world leaders and foreign monarchs and royal families, the largest gathering since the Congress of Vienna, which took place 200 years ago, just after the Battle of Waterloo. That's the significance of who came and attended that funeral service in London. I stood on the street by Buckingham Palace. I watched uh, the guards, I watched the Royal Navy, I watched the Royal Marines, I watched leaders of civic society, I watched representatives of Australian forces, New Zealand forces, Gurkhas, um, everything done perfectly, uh, military music moving. Uh, and then, and then, at the end of this long uh, procession, of course, 142 naval ratings pulling the gun carriage with mm. the Queen's body on it, on these ropes and mm. on the coffin, mm. the state crown, the orb, the scepter, and I must admit, as the coffin came past, I was, what, no more than 15, 20 feet away from it, and everybody fell silent mm. as the coffin went past. Mm. Mm. And then once it had gone, people spontaneously burst into applause. Mm. So I watched all of that at Buckingham Palace. Uh, then, of course, after that magnificent service, 
onto Windsor, the route, over, over 20 miles of the route, lined right. all the way yeah. with people. And then the Royal Mile at Windsor is literally one mile from the top of the park to the castle. And the crowds on both sides, 30, 40 deep for the whole of that mile. Mm. Just extraordinary, very no, moving. Yep. Uh, something I will simply never forget as long as I live. But something more, even more remarkable happened later on. Obviously, I couldn't get to Windsor because I was in central London. So <laughs> I went to, I went to, believe it or not, a pub in the street, and we, they put a big television up, and we all watched the service at Windsor. And there was complete silence mm. in the street. And then at the end, after the committal, as the body began, as the coffin began to disappear, God Save the King played, yeah. and everybody in that street stood to attention, sang God Save the Queen, a king, and I must admit, there wasn't a dry eye no. in the place. And I remember that spontaneity, yeah. that spontaneity in that street of people who'd never met each other before, no. as perhaps for me being the most remarkable thing. And it, it ends... 10 days of raw emotion, mm. people queuing for hour after hour on the embankment to go past the Queen's coffin. It's restored my faith in some things. I, wor I worried that with her death, I worried that those, those virtues of honour, duty, Christianity, all the things that she stood for, I thought, well, you know, will these things die with the Queen? And yet what I've seen actually is a reawakening of those ideas. Yeah. And for the first time in our lives, we're beginning to understand what a constitutional monarchy mm. is. And the rest of the world looks on in awe and, I think, almost a little touch of jealousy. Yeah. It's the fact that the monarch is above politics, is above petty arguments. That's what makes it so very, very special. And we've had this system in place, this modern system, if I can call it that, in place since 1688, yeah. um, and arguably it served us very, very well. So an extraordinary few days, a very mm. united United Kingdom, yeah. which is unusual, yeah. um, a monarchy in a very strong position, and everybody wishing King Charles III the very best for the future. Just on this word of, you use that word, spontaneity, what were your thoughts when the world saw pictures of the Queen shaking hands with the new Prime Minister Liz Truss on Tuesday, September 6, and she passed away on September 8. I remember you saying that you felt sick to the bottom of your stomach when you heard the news. I did. I was, I was astonished, Alan, at the emotional reaction I had to this. I mean, she's somebody that I'd met, yes, uh, but somebody that I revered. Uh, but I think millions of us uh, were astonished. Sometimes in life, you don't fully value something no. until it's gone. Yep. You take it for granted. And the passing of her, the passing of 70 years, and the passing, as I say, of these values that she stood for, these virtues that she stood for, values that are thought to be unfashionable by some in the modern world. And yet, the great British public have been exposed to this for the last 10 days. They rallied to it, including huge numbers of ethnic minorities who come from Commonwealth countries all over the world. And I'm pleased to say, very large numbers of young people Mm. Despite the poison they're being taught in their schools mm. about the monarchy and about British history, many of them have rallied to it as well. Yes. And so what do you think about it? Yeah. When you think about it, 48 hours before she died, she was saying goodbye to Boris Johnson, mm. welcoming Liz Truss as the next prime minister, duty to the end. Yes, I mean, you made an excellent point for our Australian viewers, they'll appreciate this, talking about the constitutional monarchy and the Republic. And you said, Nigel Farage says, the alternative would be a dreary Puritan style Republic with some clapped out politician as head of state. <laughs> I was encouraged for you to, when I heard you say that these views are reaching our younger population. Do you think the free world is capable of honouring the legacy that she leaves us with? Well, that's a tough question to answer, but I think there's a, there is at least some hope. There is at least some hope. Uh, you know, I mean, for example, if you look at the social media platforms that our teenagers, you know, spend their lives on, um, I've been posting a lot of content there over the last few months. Uh, so I, basically, I've been saying, ignore what you're being told at university, ignore your school teachers, mm. you know, recognize the great history of this country, the great service of this woman, be proud of who you are, be proud yeah. of our past, be excited about our future. I've had 
the biggest social media views I've ever had at any point in my political media career. And it's coming from youngsters. And as I walk through that throng yesterday, lots of kids, 15 to 20 year olds, running up, wanting pictures with me. I'm beginning to resonate with that generation. There you are. Alan, <laughs> they have been told. That's they right. They have been told. They what? Yeah. They're being told we're awful. Yeah. They're being told we're a dreadful country. Yep. They're being told to hate themselves. Give people a bit of hope. Give right. people the chance Good to be pride. So, but look, you, made, you made the point in relation... Well I agree. Give them hope. You made the point in relation to the Commonwealth, though, that the Chinese Communist Party have been targeting the Commonwealth for some time. Just share that with us, because Barbados <laughs> removed the Queen as head of state without referring the issue to the people in a referendum, but, of course, following significant Chinese investment. Oh, yes, that's right. I mean, literally, you know, the ruling classes of Barbados got bought by the Chinese Communist Party. The Queen got ditched. There wasn't a referendum. There wasn't even a debate. And I think, obviously, for Australia, uh, what's got to give you pause for thought is the Solomon Islands. You know, the Solomon Islands receiving Chinese investment, and mm. suddenly we hear there'll be a naval facility, a Chinese naval facility on the Solomon Islands. The Chinese Communist Party recognise that the Commonwealth is an organisation that has within it 2.5 billion people. You know, everywhere from big countries like Australia, massive countries like India, to little places like Tuvalu, all right? I mean, it is an extraordinary organisation. But because of shared history, because of shared language, because of the shared concept of common law, there is one hell of a lot that binds this Commonwealth together. Yeah. And if China is going to take over the world and dominate the world, it wants to pick it off piece by piece to stop it being a force for freedom, liberty and democracy. Well, and we, need to, we need to start valuing this. Quite. Well, talking about binding the Commonwealth together, Nigel, I want to thank you for the comments that you've made about Australian support for the British in many theatres of war. And to my viewers, just watch this. This is Nigel Farage in front of the Australian War Memorial in London. Beautiful sentiments located at Hyde Park Corner, Grove and a place. Have a look at this. So this is the Australian War Memorial in London. Only been here about 20 years. I was here when it was unveiled by John Howard, who was then the PM. And it seemed to me, on the day of the Queen's funeral, a very appropriate place to pay my respects to Australia, the incredible contribution it's made to our country. And if you can see on the wall the name of every settlement in Australia that lost somebody in both of the wars. It is a really beautiful memorial. And if you're coming from Australia to London, please come and visit. Yes, well, Nigel, thank you for that tribute. And it highlights, doesn't it, the connection between our two countries, not only the commitment to democracy, we've embraced the Westminster system of government, the rule of law, and of course, died with one another in the cause of freedom. I ask you again, do you think these values are sufficiently honoured and appreciated today? I think there is an attack, a willful, deliberate attack, a new form of the virus of Marxism that wants to try and break down those bonds, that wants to try and destroy those values. They want to destroy the concept of nation state, the Judeo-Christian principles that underpin the entirety of our society, the idea that the family uh, can be a good thing and a good environment in which children can mature, be nurtured and grow up. It is all under attack. And yet, as we've seen in the UK in the last 10 days, expose people to those values, expose people to those good, tried and tested ideas, give people, a, dare I say it, even some moral leadership, and people rally to it. So we know that those attacks on our civilization are never going to stop. But this is what makes me angry. It is the cowardice of conservatives Correct. right across the free Correct. world that has allowed these people to permeate our media, mm. to permeate our educational establishments, yes, I agree. not to provide counter-arguments. Oh, they don't want to be attacked on Twitter. Mm. We need conservative leaders yeah, with courage, clarity, and a vision, spine. and to know in their a hearts and a spine. what they're saying is what they believe in. And a spine. But viewers, remember how impressive 
How impressive this man and giving hope and telling us how to lead our future. If you want to see him in Melbourne, Sydney or Brisbane, you can book now. Write this down. Nigel, put it on the refrigerator door. NigelLive.com.au. NigelLive.com.au. I just want to ask you, Nigel, about these minorities here and around the world attacking Queen Elizabeth's legacy, calling themselves progressives. They're actually totally regressive. And all this talk that she's linked to colonialism, well, as you said, she put on a military uniform to fight Hitler to secure the freedom that allows her critics to speak as they do. Do you detect in a lot of this, and it's happening in schools and you've saluted this in universities, a determination to bring down Western civilization? No question about it. There is no question about it. This is an updated playbook that Lenin used to bring down Tsarist Russia, to introduce the world's first communist regime, which far from being equitable and decent and fair, finished up murdering 40 million of its own people. Wherever these neo-Marxist ideas have been tried since that moment, it has led to poverty, misery, dictatorship. It does not work. Uh, but, you know, I repeat the point. It's for those who are supposed to be conservatives to fight it. And I, you referenced earlier um, Archbishop Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, talking about the types of leaders we need in the world, yeah. those that go into public service to, you know, to lead, to give, rather than to take. And I yeah, suspect yeah. that it is the advent yeah. of the genuine career politician that has been as much a part of the problem of this as anything else. Good you know, you. good people are not going into public life. Right. Low-grade people who want to climb the greasy pole, get a rank, get a title, get a position. These have dominated our conservative movements. And so we need leaders. We need bravery. And we know it can happen. You know, I grew up in the 1970s in a United Kingdom that was, that was the sick man of Europe. We had the most desperate problems. We had high levels of unemployment, high level, I mean, ridiculous levels of tax. And our young people were fleeing. In fact, Australia benefited. You got many of our brightest, best young people that went to Australia and elsewhere. And we were told it was finished. Our island story was over. We were doomed. Mm. But you know, courageous leadership. And Margaret Thatcher stood up there, took on the entirety of the Absolutely. establishment. And after 11 years of Margaret Thatcher, we mm. stood there with our head held Absolutely. high in the world. Absolutely. With foreign investors piling money into our country. It, human beings cannot prosper without good principled good leadership. And, it's, and that's been the case <laughs> yep. ever since ever since we first formed in the tribes Absolutely. the modern-day nation-state. Well, leadership I, is what we need. To my viewers, I say, here's a man who gives rather than takes, and he has given against the odds. So you can hear him, it's Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, just go straight out there now, and all you have to do is go to nigellive.com.au, and he'll be here in less than a week. Nigel, it's fantastic to talk to you. You educate us, you entertain us, you inform us, and we're very grateful for that. We'll catch up in a few days' time. I look forward to it. Thank there, you. There he is. How outstanding is he? There you are. Go straight away. You can book nigellive.com.au. Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. You'll be able to hear him. He'll entertain you and he'll inform you as well. nigellive.com.au. Last night I spoke to the Queensland One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts on this very, very critical issue of climate change and energy policy. You might recall that he told me, and Malcolm Roberts has got scholarship, to back his opinions, unlike people like Chris Bowen, who has no background whatever in this vexed energy area. Malcolm Roberts said that many Labor, Liberal and National Party members have privately confided to him that there is no scientific basis for their party's climate and energy policies, but they remain silent. You might remember he also told us he'd asked the then Morrison government's Senate leader, Matthias Cormann, for the logical scientific points to support climate and energy policies. Matthias Cormann couldn't answer other than to say, we have to fulfill international commitments. And then he made the point that the CSIRO, founded in 1916, an Australian government agency responsible for scientific research, the CSIRO had never quantified any specific impact of carbon dioxide from human activity on any climate or weather variables such as temperature, rainfall, droughts, floods, storms. In other words, the CSIRO couldn't quantify 
the specific impact of carbon dioxide from human activity on any of these weather events. Well, only a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Michael Schellenberger, September 8, in fact, 12 days ago. Your response online to that interview was amazing. On one platform alone, there were over 100,000 views. Michael Schellenberger, remember, was a world-renowned environmental activist for 20 years. But in July 2020, he published his book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. You will recall he talked about, and I quote, the climate scare we have created over the past 30 years, unquote. Now, in this entire country of 26 million people, you could count on one hand the number of people who are prepared to give people like Michael Schellenberg a platform because he's contrary to the received religion. No one in government on either side. But on climate change, he said, it is not even our most serious environmental problem. And quote, once you realise how badly misinformed we've been, it's hard not to feel duped. Well, in the last couple of days, why am I telling you this? In the last couple of days, Michael Schellenberger is at it again. But when are government and the electorate going to wake up? He writes, quote, since the end of the Cold War, policymakers, journalists and activists have pointed to melting glaciers, dying coral and deadly floods as signs of the apocalypse. Within 15 years, said Al Gore in 2006, this is Michael Schellenberger writing about Glacier National Park, quote, this is the park that will be formally known as Glacier. In 2017, Schellenberger reminds us, media outlets reported, quote, climate change is killing the Great Barrier Reef. And in May this year, Newsweek reported that, quote, cities brace for apocalyptic flooding as a new age of superstorms dawns, unquote. Schellenberger then reminds us that in 2019, Glacier National Park officials began quietly removing visitor signs, claiming that the glaciers would all be gone by 2020 because they were all still there. And quote, scientists in 2022 measured more coral on the Great Barrier Reef than at any point since they began monitoring them in 1986. And he further writes, not only have deaths and damages from flooding declined significantly worldwide, for the first time in 25 years, there were no Atlantic hurricanes in August, unquote. Writes Michael Schellenberger, this is the last couple of days, in truth, there is no scientific base for any claim of climate apocalypse. Then he makes this point, which we've made many times on this program, and I quote, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization and others forecast that farmers in the world's poorest regions, like sub-Saharan Africa, could see a 40% increase in crop yields if they gain access to fertilizers from fossil fuels, irrigation and mechanization, quote, even at high levels of warming, unquote. It's the source of all plant life, carbon dioxide. Writes Michael Schellenberger, in spite of all this, quote, 36% of Americans surveyed believe climate change will make the earth uninhabitable. 31% believe climate change will lead to human extinction. He says these apocalyptic fears are concentrated among Americans who identify as politically liberal, unquote. Mind you, if a poll were taken in our schools today, I'd venture to say well over 70% of the children in the classroom would believe that climate change will make Earth uninhabitable. Michael Schellenberger asks, why do people believe this stuff? He answers his question, quote, why is it that so many people have come to believe that climate change is an apocalyptic threat, despite all of the science of the contrary? And why do most of them tend to be liberal rather than conservative? Unquote. Well, one word we should eliminate from our vocabulary in relation to some of these people is the word progressive. They're not progressive, they are regressive, just as the so-called moderates in the Liberal Party are anything but moderate. They are backward thinking. Michael Schellenberger answers his own question. Why is this so? A simple response, quote, one explanation for the disproportionately apocalyptic view of climate change among liberals is the fact that democratic leaders and progressive news media, there's that word again, routinely misdescribe it as such, unquote. Misdescribe it. Biden called climate change last November 
Biden, give me a break, the challenge of our collective lifetimes. Someone's written this for him and quote, the existential threat to human existence as we know it. I mean, as Michael Schellenberger says, this has become the substitute religion and it's dishonest. Now, I don't mind adults being dishonest. Let them go their own way. But the impact this is having on young, impressionable minds is appalling. Youth suicide rates are up everywhere. We've virtually persuaded young people via the alarmist response to coronavirus and what Michael Schellenberger calls the apocalyptic view of climate change, that the world in the future will be uninhabitable. Those responsible for these Armageddon-like views have a lot to answer for. Remember, in the New Testament, Armageddon was the last battle between good and evil before the day of judgment. Today, the word Armageddon means a catastrophic conflict likely to destroy the world. This is how climate change is being presented and it is a disgraceful abandonment of responsible leadership. Well, it's been a fairly explosive week in America where the governors of America's two biggest Republican states, Florida and Texas, have sent illegal immigrants to Vice President Kamala Harris's official home in Washington and the seaside resort of Martha's Vineyard, upping the ante on a policy to draw attention to a humanitarian crisis on the southern border. The Texas governor, Greg Abbott, claimed responsibility for dropping off about 100 immigrants by bus outside the vice presidential residence last Thursday. And this policy is not new. After all, Kamala Harris is supposed to be the border czar and she's done nothing to secure the southern border. And Biden, in cognitive decline, most probably doesn't know where the southern border is. So up to the busing of these illegal immigrants last week, the policy had begun in April and it's bussed more than 10,000 unauthorised migrants to Washington, New York and Chicago. Now, Ron DeSantis, the outstanding Florida governor, has claimed responsibility for chartering two plane loads of about 50 immigrants from San Antonio, Texas to Martha's Vineyard. As everyone knows, this is the playground of America's elite. Barack Obama, oh, the good Democrats, oh yes, they buy the rich houses. Barack Obama and the climate change czar, John Kerry, they've got homes there. Interestingly, Washington DC and New York boasted when Trump was president, that they were jurisdictions where the ignominy of the Trump administration could be quarantined. In other words, they call them sanctuaries. In other words, don't worry about what Trump does, it won't affect us. We can lock anything that Trump is on about out of our jurisdictions. Well, as Governor DeSantis said, the minute even a small fraction of what the towns on the border deal with every day is brought to their front door, they go berserk. Said DeSantis defiantly, we're not a sanctuary state and will gladly facilitate the transport of illegal immigrants to sanctuary jurisdictions." Unquote. I might add, I think Ron DeSantis could afford it. His political operation has raised an historic $177.4 million, more than any other governor in history, and he deserves every cent of it. He's outstanding. That was before he sent, I might add, the 50 illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard. That action became the week's top national news story. Peggy Grandy, who speaks with such incisive authority on all of these issues, joins me. Peggy, thank you for your time. The Conservatives would be cheering DeSantis, I reckon. Absolutely. And thank you, as always, Alan, for having me on. And you mentioned Joe Biden probably doesn't know where the border is. He certainly doesn't know where it is. He's been in public life almost 50 years and he has never, not once, been to our southern border. And then Kamala Harris, our border czar, supposedly, has been close, but actually hasn't ever been to the border as well. These are terrible policies that have originated with the Democrats. And actually, this political stunt, as they're referring to it as, started with the Democrats themselves. And you and I, Alan, on air, maybe over a year ago, we talked about these secret flights that the Biden administration was launching all over the nation, shuttling these immigrants to different places and dropping them. And if you've looked at a map of the United States of America, you'll notice that Florida is not exactly a border state with Mexico. And so how on earth do those migrants get to Florida except for being bused there or flown there by this Democrat? party, which is now accusing the Republicans of playing dirty politics by doing the exact same yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Texas has borne the brunt of a wave of these asylum seekers. More than 1.8 million 
have crossed into the United States from Mexico in the nine months since last October. How big an issue is this coming up to the midterm elections? Well, it's been a huge issue, especially for conservatives and especially for people in border states of both major political parties since it began under the Biden administration. And so now it's becoming um, an open border policy is not just affecting border states, but it's also affecting the rest of America, which it has been already. I mean, the crime, the criminals, the drugs, the human trafficking that's coming, this affects all of us. And so we are just putting a spotlight now, taking some a few, a very few number of these migrants mm. from some of these border states and sending them to places that seem to want and welcome them. These are all places that have mm. said, we're a sanctuary city or we're a sanctuary state. We welcome all. Even Biden himself said, these people shouldn't be treated like illegal immigrants. They're a gift. Okay, well, we're just gifting them to places that say they want lots of Well, of course, the Democrats are now whinging, calling this a premeditated political stunt. Your thoughts on that, Peggy? Well, we see the hypocrisy. You know, they're fine with thousands of immigrants coming illegally across the border every single day into places that don't affect them. But you put 50 of them, 5-0, 50 into an exclusive area. Barack Obama has a $12 million home. I don't know how many bedrooms he has there, but he probably could have easily housed all 50 of them there if they were such a gift and so welcome there. But what do they do? They, they have this outrage, and the next day they have 125 National Guardsmen come and usher them quickly off the island. The hypocrisy is just almost laughable it if it wasn't uh, so I mean, no, and I, tragic what's happening to me. I suspect some of these people from Venezuela have never seen anything like Martha's Vineyard, an island town of about 20,000 people. But, Peggy, the rich Democrats, the rich Democrats don't want them. I mean, Kamala Harris, after delivering a speech in Washington last week, just looked blankly at a reporter who asked her for a statement on the arrivals. She had no idea. I mean, this is an escalating war, isn't it, Peggy, of words between Democrats and the Southern Republicans ahead of the congressional and gubernatorial elections. Which way is this debate turning, do you think? Who's politically in front? Well, the Republicans are ahead of this because they've been talking about it for a long time. And they've been the ones most affected because so many of the border states are run by Republicans. But you know what? This is not just a Republican issue. And there's actually several Democrats who are mayors of cities or are in border border states who also are suffering under the same policies. But we're not talking about the mayor of El Paso who's outraged that all these migrants are coming there, too. This is a Democrat-induced problem. They've created this problem. They've refused up to now to do anything to solve it. And all we're doing as Republicans is escalating the conversation, saying, putting exactly what they say they want in their own backyard and seeing if it'll force a Mm. policy change. I'm not in favor of these kind of gimmicks. I want the border closed because America is safer. All of America, not just border states, is safer when our border is closed. Absolutely. I mean, Washington, uh, New York's received more than 2,000 of these. Uh, Washington's received more than 8,000 since April. The Washington mayor is saying she had two requests for federal government help from the Biden administration, which was denied. The California governor, this Newsom, has asked the Department of Justice to look into whether sending migrants to other parts of the country constituted kidnapping. Hello? Does this bloke know what the Democrats have been doing for years? Well, he accuses these Republican governors of kidnapping, and he turns a complete blind eye to the human smuggling and human trafficking that's taking place across our border every single day. Why isn't he going after the drug smugglers, the human smugglers at the border? Why isn't he outraged when over 50 migrants die in a big rig tractor trailer at the border? He's not outraged over that. He's outraged over them sending 50 migrants to Mm. someplace like Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, to these sanctuary destinations. I mean, DeSantis has said, I'm just relocating them. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I mean, these sanctuary destinations for our viewers are cities that say, all our resources will be used for local problems. We're a sanctuary. We're not worried about all those people outside. To hell with everyone else. All Democrat cities. So presumably what's happening on the southern border doesn't worry any of these Democrat cities, Peggy. 
Right. And, you know, now they're having to face their policies. And Ron DeSantis is in a lot of ways is really just forcing their hand. He's saying, you have said that you're a sanctuary city or state. You've said you want these people. And so we're going to give them to you. And they complain whether it's New York City, about a couple of thousand or Chicago, about a couple of thousand. Texas gets that many every single day, day after day after day. And they don't have the resources to support it either. And they're not a sanctuary state. And Mm. so it's really forcing the Democrats to look at their policy. And I think that this issue is going to be pivotal going into November. The voters are outraged over this because now they're seeing the effect on their medical care, on their social services, on their schools, and on their safety. I mean, DeSantis' office says it is not the responsibility of Floridian to subsidize aliens to reside in our state unlawfully. We did not consent to Biden's open borders agenda. I mean, it's a pretty powerful point. Is the point, though, gaining traction, Peggy? It absolutely is because, you know, they complain about these Republican mayors doing it. But what about looking at the federal government who has an obligation constitutionally to protect our borders? And so if we want to look at people who are in violation of statutes or laws, it's the federal government. It's not these Republican governors. They're reacting to bad policy and to bad decisions and to an administration who wants this, who is encouraging this and is not doing anything to enforce it. It's going to backfire on them in November. Yeah, I must say, I I was very interested to note that DeSantis made a brilliant point. He took a swipe at Biden when he said Biden was scrambling to get his cabinet together to try to address the fact that there were governors helping to relocate illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities. But as DeSantis said, he didn't scramble to get his cabinet together when Florida had millions of people illegally pouring across the southern border. He didn't scramble to get his cabinet together when he had 53 migrants die in a trailer in Texas because they were neglected by the federal government. DeSantis said Biden didn't scramble to get his cabinet together when Americans were victimized by criminal aliens that Biden let across the border. So Peggy, all DeSantis was trying to do was insulate his state from the negative ramifications of Biden's reckless border policies. Is DeSantis and the simple rhetoric of DeSantis gaining traction? It is, and we see other governors being emboldened to do the same thing. We've seen this administration, they can take action and do anything that they want to when they want to. We've seen Biden take unilateral decisions and take exec- make executive orders for things that he constitutionally isn't even allowed to do. But he has no interest in fixing this problem because it's not the problem, it's the plan. And the American people are not in support of it. And it's really backfiring mm-hmm. even more and more. Yeah. You know, he could fix this if he wanted to, but he doesn't want yeah, to. I thought and this- they think it's going to help them bringing Democrat voters into this country. But the Democrats, I mean, the, re- the Hispanic population, I'm sorry, is running away from the Democrat Party and running away from Biden. So I don't think importing a bunch of immigrants from all over the world, including South and Central America, is going to help him. Well done. So just one final point. I thought DeSantis made a very good point. He said there were more corporate journalists in Martha's Vineyard than had ever gone to the southern border. Just one final point, uh, Peggy. Every time Biden opens his mouth, he talks about the extremism of the Republicans and in particular Trump. But apart from Trump's policy achievements, isn't it the reality that when Trump was president, we didn't hear a squeak out of the rocket man in North Korea? There was no contemplation by Putin about invading Ukraine. There was no intimation that Xi had desires on Taiwan. Isn't this what strong leadership provides? Yeah. And if we want to talk about extreme, let's talk about Biden's policies that are so extreme that no other nation in the world would be so foolish to have the policies we have. And you and I have talked about for years on air now, a strong America makes for a strong and safer world. And what we see is a vacuum of power. And it allows a space like Xi and Putin and other bullies and tyrants all over the world to to be emboldened and to take action. And so that's what we're seeing now. I fear we're going to see more and more ahead. November is not far enough away for Biden to fix these policies. He doesn't want to. The American people know exactly who's responsible for it, and they're going to hold him to account in November. Good on you. Good to talk to you, Peggy. Your insights are extraordinary. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us, and we'll talk again next week. There she is. Outstanding, isn't she? Peggy Grandy in America. Thank you, Alan. Before we go, 
This week, billionaire iron ore magnate Andrew Forrest was in New York touting his new green hydrogen scheme. He said, quote, we must accelerate our transition to the post-fossil fuel era, driving global scale industrial change as climate change continues to worsen, unquote. Now, I've known Andrew Forrest for a long time. He's a decent bloke and he's a patriotic Australian. But on climate change, Andrew needs to do some reading and some homework. He had a crack at fellow billionaire Elon Musk for rubbishing Andrew Forrest's hydrogen dream. You see, recently Elon Musk described hydrogen fuel cells as, quote, the most dumb thing I could possibly imagine for energy storage. He said, I really can't emphasise this enough. This comes after Musk claimed, quote, civilization will crumble, unquote, if the world halts the use of oil and natural gas. And Musk called for continued drilling and exploration of fossil fuel sources. In response, Andrew Forrest argued that Musk, quote, should get out and ask himself, am I really a climate change avenger or just a businessman? If he knocks hydrogen, then we know he's just in it for a buck, unquote. Andrew, may I be bold enough to make a few points? For someone who's so concerned about carbon emissions, why did your company, Fortescue Metals Group, increase its emissions by 8% in 2021 to 2 million tonnes? The average Australian has an annual carbon footprint of 17 tonnes. Andrew, that means you are responsible for more emissions than almost 120,000 Australians. But it gets worse. In 2019, 94.5% of your company's revenue, as I understand it, came from China, which uses your iron ore to produce steel in coal-fired power stations, blast furnaces, coal. Get it? Last year, Andrew, you said you aim to produce 15 million tonnes of green hydrogen a year by 2030. The catch? Well, according to Ben Beatty from The Spectator magazine, this would require 750 terawatt hours of electricity production, more than three times Australia's total annual electricity demand. It would also require 135 million tonnes of water, enough water to fill over 50,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Andrew, good luck with that. But then what about the rent-seeking, which I call subsidies? For years, Andrew, you have rallied against using taxpayers' money to fund fossil fuels. But doesn't your company still take $300 million a year from the taxpayer as part of the fuel tax credit for heavy vehicles? Should you give that $300 million back to the taxpayer in order to be intellectually consistent? My point with all of this is, and it's not personal, Andrew Forrest's not the only green billionaire virtue signalling about saving the planet. Many of these billionaires have profited from the extraction of Australian resources. That's how they got there. And even today, they continue to send most of their iron ore to China, and we know the remainder of that equation. But then they seek to distract the public with all these schemes to save the planet from climate change. Andrew, I want to be saved from hypocrisy and double standards. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8pm. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.